This is an AMI podcast. Welcome to My Life in Books, Authors Talking Books, presented by blind writer and broadcaster Red Sale from his home in London, England. On the morning of the 6th of December, 1917, a cargo ship laden with munitions exploded in Halifax Harbour, Nova Scotia. At the time, it was the largest man-made explosion in history, destroying the district of Richmond and leaving nearly 2,000 people dead, 9,000 injured and up to 25,000 homeless. Among the injured were many whose eyes had been damaged by flying shrapnel and glass. So many, in fact, that the disaster hastened the foundation of the CNIB. Of the people who lost their sight entirely that day, the youngest was two-and-a-half-year-old Eric Davidson, who went on to defy both expectation and convention by becoming a fully qualified automobile mechanic. He was also emblematic of Halifax's determination to overcome the shockwaves. His story and that of the Halifax disaster have been meticulously researched by his daughter, Marilyn Davidson Elliott, for her book, The Blind Mechanic. And the Sealer Library was on hand to ensure that it was recorded as an audiobook, which is narrated by Jan Crowley. When I was just a little girl... I realised that my father was a special person. Not only because he was my father and I adored him, but because whenever we were out in public, people gravitated to him. He was like a magnet. People wanted to shake my father's hand and speak with him, and they were always smiling and happy to be around him. It became routine. In time, I came to know that my father was not just special. He was extraordinary. My father... Eric Davidson was a survivor of the Halifax explosion. As a toddler, he was blinded when the munitions ship Mont Blanc exploded in Halifax Harbour on December 6, 1917. From childhood, my father dreamed of becoming an automobile mechanic. He was denied the opportunity to formally train at a trade school because he was blind. Not willing to accept this rejection as defeat, he schooled himself and worked for years honing his skills to become a qualified auto mechanic. His determination was rewarded. Dad had a successful career as an accomplished auto mechanic for the city of Halifax for 25 years. How Dad chose to live his life and how he overcame the challenges of living in absolute darkness for 92 years is nothing short of remarkable. He embraced life and faced each day with a positive attitude, fortitude, and most assuredly with grace and humour. By approaching life as he did, Dad lived a very full and rewarding life. Marilyn Davidson Elliott, welcome to My Life in Books. Thank you, it's good to be with you today. So, can you describe the town of Halifax in 1917 on the morning of the explosion before it happened? Oh, sure. 1917 Halifax was a small city at that time, 50,000 people for the population. And the community of Richmond, uh, where my father lived, was uh, roughly about 25,000 in population, mostly working class and, I guess you could say, some poor and marginalized people. And that would be what they call the North End then and still is now. The South End of the city was the commercial uh, part of the city, the government offices, the more elite of the city lived. Across from Halifax, because uh, Halifax is a harbour city, uh, was the town of Dartmouth with a much smaller population. And on that day, uh, my father was two years old and he was of course, at home with his mother. His father had uh, just left for work, and there was a fire down in the harbour. A ship was on fire, and at that time, of course, no one knew what the ship was or what it was carrying, but it was the Mont Blanc, and it was loaded with TNT, 
all sorts of uh, various uh, explosives. It was just a floating time bomb. And what had happened was that the Mont Blanc and another ship, the Emo, collided in the harbor, and the sparks from that collision set the explosives on fire. The crew of the Mont Blanc immediately left the ship. Witnesses describe it as uh, rats jumping from a sinking ship. So they abandoned the ship and rowed frantically to the Dartmouth side of the harbor, leaving the Mont Blanc to make its way into Richmond Piers. And shortly after 9 o'clock, 9.03, the Mont Blanc exploded. And it remains the biggest non-nuclear man-made explosion in history. And we should explain that the reason the Mont Blanc was there was because Halifax was a major muster point, a starting-off point for the convoys going over the Atlantic to relieve the war effort of World War I. That's correct, yes, it was. A lot of convoys left Halifax, some of them bringing uh, relief goods across to Europe, but a lot of it was, well, things that were needed in the war, like horses and ammunition and so on and so forth. Um, But yes, Halifax was a a major muster point from North America to Europe. Uh, And of course, it it is one of the terrible ironies that for the 20 minutes or so that the Mont Blanc was ablaze, it was an incredible spectacle. And this explains why so many people were by their windows watching the fire. And when the explosion happened... They, of course, were blinded by flying shards of blown-up ship and also by the the glass in the windows, including your two-and-a-half-year-old father. That is correct. It was the worst mass blinding, certainly in Canadian history. A lot was learned from that uh, with regard to treating injuries of the eye. Uh, But yes, you're absolutely correct. So many people, including my father, were watching this magnificent fire in the harbour, totally unaware of the danger and the destruction that would soon befall them. Yeah, to give people an indication of the magnitude of this explosion, the remains of the hull of the ship were blown, what, a thousand feet into the air? Oh, yes, and and miles away. Mm. Uh, If you can picture it, Halifax is a peninsula, and... Where the Mont Blanc exploded, let's say at the north of the peninsula, at the southwest point of the peninsula is where the uh, part of the anchor of the Mont Blanc finally rested. Another part of it ended up over in Dartmouth, again, several miles inland. So uh, it was a horrific explosion. It leveled Richmond. Most of Richmond was wooden houses, wooden structures. There was industry there, and those industry buildings were uh, cement, concrete, etc. But everything was leveled. Trees were gone. It was just one doctor who was arriving from rural Nova Scotia described it as Dante's Inferno when he came upon it. It was horrific. And the injuries uh, that survivors and those who did not survive victims, uh, the, the Injuries were horrific. It was just unimaginable. And so many people were killed. Um, You give details of one woman who lost all 10 of her children and her husband as well. And yet this actually gave Eric an abiding sense of how lucky he was that not only he but his mother father and sister, all rather against the odds, survived, although with fairly awful injuries and trauma. Oh, indeed, yes. Uh, I guess probably one of the reasons that they survived was that they were at the outer perimeter of ground zero, if you will. Those people closer to the explosion, yes, there was no chance of survival. The house that my father um, and my grandparents lived in, it did collapse, but 
somehow my grandfather managed to free up my father, my aunt, and my grandmother. So yes, Dad always considered himself very fortunate and his family fortunate. He did lose an aunt and two cousins and all their neighbors. It was a close-knit community. So there was so many people that they knew that lost loved ones. And uh, in an instant, lives were so drastically changed. Now, it would have been very easy for Eric to feel bitter. And yet you paint a picture of a, a rather impish little boy who who went to blind school in Halifax with other survivors and who was always up for a challenge, whether it was challenging the teachers and ducking out of school to go skating in the winter. He he was a bit of a scamp, wasn't he? He was, and he was his entire life. He he really enjoyed a good laugh. And uh, yes, he, he certainly probably caused his mother and father a few gray hairs, to say the least. Uh, but uh, when you say, you know, he wasn't bitter... He was not, but, um, you know, it's amazing he wasn't because his mother and father were. But, yeah, he had a totally different outlook on life than than they did, which was rather amazing. And I think the School for the Blind and his relationship and friendships uh, had a lot to do with that. You say in the foreword to the book that he was always attracted to cars and mechanical things. And I was astounded to read that as early as 1919, when Eric would have been just four years old, his father wrote a letter asking whether he could have an old wrecked car delivered to the family house for Eric to tinker with. That really is a very, very long-standing fascination with cars that he had. Absolutely, and it's amazing that his father recognised that uh, so early. I mean, my grandparents were eager to do whatever they could to make Dad's life enjoyable. I think they felt so much guilt over what happened, which is a parental thing. You know, we, we do that when our children are hurt. But he recognized early on that dad had such an inquisitiveness with regard to automobiles. And for him to write that letter just shows how eager they were to bring whatever joy they could to my father's life. And accordingly, when... Eric finished school, he applied to the Halifax Technical College to become a mechanic, but he was turned down. Uh, Yeah, he was told by the principal that he'd be better trying to fix washing machines than uh, automobiles, and they, they would not accept him. Uh, but but this didn't stop him. He he went out, uh, acquired a 1925 Chevy, and with the help of his brothers reading him the manuals, he he got to grips with it. You describe in quite some detail how he used his sense of touch, smell, hearing, everything to to establish what was wrong with the engine and and fix it. And and he destructively tested that engine, didn't he? Took it all to pieces and put it all back together again. Oh, yes, indeed. And he would purposely, as you say, destructively, uh, do something to the engine. Let's say, take a spark plug out or dirty up a spark plug so that it was uh, the engine, he would say, would miss. And then, of course, fix the uh, the problem. Uh, either replace the spark plug, I'm using a simple ex- example here, or clean the spark plug, put it back in, and listen to how the engine ran as it should, properly. Um, so mostly it was sense of touch and hearing. He used his hearing to really gauge a problem with a vehicle because um, that's something, I guess, that we as sighted people take for granted. We don't listen to things, and uh, his his hearing told him what his eyes could not. 
Yeah, I mean, I would always maintain that I can hear whether a roast is cooked when it comes out of the oven, but <laughs> I'm not altogether sure I'd uh, I'd extend that to whether my brother's car is running properly. But <laughs> but but Eric gained quite a reputation locally for for being able to fix problems that others couldn't, and you give some great examples of people who have bought cars knew they weren't running properly, couldn't get their local garage to fix it, and, and would bring them round to Eric to, to diagnose the issue. Yes, absolutely. And that went on for his entire life, I would say until the last 10 years of his life when he was just uh, too old, I guess. And uh, yes, right up until that point, uh, people continued to bring their vehicles to him and say, Eric, can you can you give a listen to the cards? It's not running right. There's something wrong. And uh, if he couldn't get it right away when he was listening to it, he'd ask them to take him for a drive around the block or throughout the, the city so that he could feel, too, how it was operating. And it was another war, the Second World War, that gave Eric his break into becoming a registered mechanic. There was a shortage of skilled labour because so many people were away fighting the war. And Eric was spotted and recommended to a local garage in Halifax. Yes, that's correct. And uh, he uh, spoke to the manager, wanted to be considered for the job, and the manager said, well... I've never had someone blind work for me before, so I'm going to put you through a little bit of a test here, and if you can pass this test, uh, you can have the job. So the test was he had to make his uh, way through the shop without bumping into anything. Now, of course, the manager first took him on a dry run around the shop, and uh, then he said, okay, now you're on your own. You make your way around the shop, and if you can do that without any problems, the job is yours. And, of course, that's what he did. He, he made his way around the shop, maneuvered around various uh, barriers without any problem, and he got the job. As, as an apprentice, of course, to start off with, yes. And he very much proved himself, and got his license in Nova Scotia and then found work in Ontario. And what I found so striking was the letters of reference that he had from each of his employers. They are glowing. This is, this is no act of charity on their behalf. They recognised that they had a very, very good mechanic, a man who was meticulous and methodical and also very popular with his co-workers. Yes, that's right. I, I was so pleased that my mother had saved all these gems because how would I know this? How would I be able to even write that uh, uh, my father was so well thought of as an employee without those? So, yes, they are glowing, as you say, and, and what a wonderful thing for me to find. Now, when he was in Ontario, it's when the media interest really started. The media was very taken by the idea of this blind mechanic, who was also very humble, and he started featuring in articles and broadcasts. That's correct, and, and you're right, he was humble, but... Uh, the media were most intrigued, as you can imagine. Here's this uh, gentleman, uh, and we're talking the 19, late 1940s, 50s, and he, you know, he can't see, but he's a mechanic. Mm -hmm. We've got to, we've got to check this out. So yes, there were a lot of articles uh, about my father. Every year, usually on December 6th, uh, the media would seek dad out because that's the anniversary of the explosion. And he, you know, harumph and say, oh, I guess I have to. You know, he wasn't a, a willing participant, <laughs> but, you know, he could never say no either. And I was also struck that he never used the word disabled about himself. Stubborn, 
mm-hmm. meticulous, but um, he he saw this as just a different way of doing things. That's right. Um, it's not like we were told we couldn't use that mm. word or anything. It, it was just never used. We never considered our father disabled. My goodness, he went out to work every day and put food on the table and provided shelter for a growing family. So, yeah, we, we didn't consider him as disabled. He certainly had a handicap, but it didn't stop him from doing whatever he wanted to do in life. And I suppose the the pinnacle of his fame really came in 1975 when a film was made about him called Just One of the Boys. Yes, it was National Film Board of Canada. And uh, yes, they sought him out to do a documentary. And at first he said, well, no, I don't think so. And they said, well, this will be used in uh, trade schools and you know, we're not going to exploit you. We're going to use this as a teaching aid and uh, something that will give people some incentive uh, in their studies and so on. So uh, he agreed then at that point. He said, okay, well, if it's going to be used for that, you know, educational purposes, okay. And and that film title, Just One of the Boys, is really how I suppose he wanted to be seen and remembered. Yes, yes, indeed. And he so many times, you know, called himself just one of the boys. I'm just one of the boys. And when I think back to uh, what I know of him as a a young lad, he just wanted to be one of the boys. He wanted to play and do all the things that young boys did. And as, as he proceeded through life, he still wanted to do what other men were doing. He wanted a job. He wanted to raise a family. He wanted hobbies. Uh, he wanted to enjoy nature. He just was one of the boys. And he was a great family man. The, the portrait you paint of him shows how devoted he was to your mother, your two brothers, and yourself. And I, you paint a wonderful picture of him walking around town with his white cane in his pocket, his arm looped through yours, and being stopped every five minutes because in his lifetime he became a bit of a living folk hero. Yes, he was a, a local celebrity, I guess you would say. And again, Halifax, you know, I suppose is small town compared to some of the bigger cities. So you see the same people oftentimes over and over again in the downtown core. And in those days, there weren't shopping malls when I was a young girl. <laughs> I'm telling my age now. But um, yes, we we never went anywhere that someone didn't stop my father. Eric, how's it going today? You know, and and the chat was on. Not only was your dad an expert with many, many different makes of car, he was actually known as one of the great experts on Rolls Royces in Canada. He collected them as well, but he was also a great collector of sounds, And you paint a picture of a man who walked around Halifax with a tape recorder and a microphone with him, recording the various different sounds that he could hear. That's right, yes. He enjoyed going out in the spring and recording frogs and peepers, the spring sounds. We have a a great park here called Point Pleasant Park, and that was one of his favourite places to go that he could get on his own uh, just by getting on the bus and, you know, he didn't have to rely on anyone driving him. So that's where a lot of his recordings took place. As we got older and we could drive, then we would drive him out into the country a little further for him to do these recordings. But uh, he, he recorded everything. He recorded us children playing our piano recitals, much to my chagrin. <laughs> and uh, w- one of the last things he recorded was the uh, demolition of the Halifax School for the Blind in 1983. And it was uh, not a happy thing for him. You know, he and my mother had such wonderful memories of that institution. And uh, they were much saddened to see it demolished for a parking lot. That is an amazing treasure 
trove of memories for you to be able to access. But I know that you had to go out and buy a reel-to-reel tape player to actually be able to listen to those things. Yes, I did, because... uh... I don't know what happened to Dad's reel-to-reel. I guess when, you know, he passed and my mother passed, some of these things got given away or whatever. So, yes, I had to march out and find one, and it wasn't easy in these days. Uh, But I, I finally found one in New Brunswick, and that opened up so many tapes for me because, of course, a lot of these tapes were not marked. Some of them had Braille markings on them. Well, I don't read Braille. So um, I had to listen to them one by one. And oh my goodness, I don't know how many boxes of tissues I went through. But it was it was a wonderful listen. Very emotional. And what with all the newspaper cuttings and the other media interest, including the films, you had an amazing treasure trove to work from which was augmented by the fact that your mother was a bit of a hoarder. Yes, she didn't throw any paper out. And it was a blessing. I mean, yes, she kept all those letters, uh, as as we discussed earlier, the letters of reference, licenses, all his various licenses, because they had to be renewed every year. And uh, letters, I have letters that his mother wrote him when he was in Ontario. Obviously, someone had to read those to him. But yes, I have quite a treasure trove. And I think we can hear how your father became emblematic of Halifax's determination to to rise from the rubble, to be optimistic and look to the future. And it's rather fitting that there is a sports ground named in your father's honour constructed within Richmond uh, as a memorial to the events of 1917. Yes. After the Halifax explosion, the uh, committee was set up, the Halifax Relief Commission, which through Ottawa, through the federal government, managed uh, different things like rebuilding and pensions for those who were injured. They also built uh, a memorial field on Fort Needham, which... I describe as a drumlin in Halifax, in Richmond. So that park then became a memorial park, uh, never to be used for any other purpose than for the people. And a part of that park has a sports field, and that sports field is named after my father. Yes. It is important to note that not everybody recovered quite so positively from the trauma of the Halifax disaster, including Eric's own mother. And after the break, we'll be hearing a bit more about her story and how you and others have worked so hard to make sure that the disaster is not forgotten and that lessons can continue to be learned. Share your views on the books you love with Red. Email feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail by calling 844-122-1111. Welcome back to My Life in Books. This week, I'm in conversation with Marilyn Davidson Elliott about her book, The Blind Mechanic, the extraordinary story of her father, Eric Davidson, a survivor of the 1917 Halifax disaster. Now, as we said just before the break, Marilyn, not everybody could face the world with such optimism after the Halifax disaster as your father did, and his mother was haunted by a sense of guilt, not least because she had had a dream the night before the explosion. Yes, that's correct, and how eerie it is. My grandmother had a nightmare. I guess we'd call it a premonition now. But in this nightmare, she was alerted to leave the city, gather her family, and leave the city. She woke her husband and told him of of her dream, and he said, like any husband probably would, it's just a dream, go back to sleep. 
And then, of course, the next morning, simply hours later, devastation uh, of the Halifax explosion and uh, the horrible injuries to her little baby boy, um, you know, she, she just never got over it. And she was far from alone. Her post-traumatic stress disorder, as we would call it now, affected many, many other people, including your husband's family, who, who discovered a silence that had gone down the generations after the explosion. Yes, it's quite common. It's quite well known here in Halifax that so many survivors of the Halifax explosion did not want to speak about it. And yes, my husband's family, they lost 12 immediate, mostly children. Uh, They were very close to ground zero, um, living on the waterfront. And uh, yes, it wasn't until we were doing genealogy that my husband discovered all these relatives who died on December 6th, 1917. And yes, his father did not know about it. Uh, he contacted cousins, and uh, at this point, uncles and aunts were gone. Nobody knew about it. So it it was a secret. So yes, people handled things in different ways. Some people just could not speak of it. Other people were drowning in their own misery. There were suicides. Um, a lot of people, uh, mostly men, turned to alcohol. So it, it lived with people um, forever, for generations. And, you know, it, it's, it hasn't affected me or my generation, I wouldn't say, but, but we can recall stories, different descendants can recall stories of granddad being an alcoholic and so on and so forth. Yes, it might not exclude but it does explain some of those behaviours. Yes. And, and, yes. and that is why it's so important that, it, that the events and the aftermath should still be remembered. And I know that you are very, very active in that campaign and that you were on the board of the committee that organised the centenary commemoration of the explosion in 2017. That's correct. Why it is so important to me and to other descendants is because for the first 50 years following the explosion, there was not a commemorative service. The city had basically forgotten uh, these people. There was no monument. There was nothing. And the first uh, service was held on the 50th anniversary in 1967. And the following year... uh, the local alderman for the Richmond district said it was so well attended we should do this every year. And other aldermen of the city said, no, that's not necessary. Uh, They've had their 50th anniversary uh, celebration last year, uh, commemoration, not celebration. That's enough. So it was a city of indifference. Uh, Why? Uh, The only thing historians here can figure is that the people who died and were most affected by the disaster were working class, poor, and marginalized. And so therefore, it is very important to me that we do not forget. And I have worked hard to, uh, you know, have the city recognize and honor uh, this occasion. Uh, once a year. I believe also an Indigenous community was wiped out by a tidal wave caused by the explosion. Yes, and that was across uh, the harbour in Dartmouth. And uh, thank you for bringing that up because I, I didn't mention that. But yes, you're absolutely right. So when you take all these things into consideration, uh, you know, I, I can't help but feel that these were all disposable people. And um, if it had have been the elite of the city, um, that this would not have happened. The monument that is in place on Fort Needham now was built by concerned citizens and survivors. Uh, The city of Halifax did not contribute any funding to it, and that was uh, erected in 1985. 
and the first services uh, annually commenced after that. It wasn't until the 1990s that Halifax began to host uh, this commemorative service. So, you know, a lot needed to be mended here. And you continue to research and write about the disaster and its aftermath for local newspapers and magazines. What are you working on at the moment? I'm working on... um Restoring the name Richmond to the community it once uh, represented here in Halifax. Following the explosion, I mean, at the time of the explosion, Richmond was a a vibrant little community. Following the explosion, uh, somewhere around the 1940s and 50s, for whatever reason, the name faded away. And uh, nobody refers to this area as Richmond anymore. I say this area because I live in this area, um, Richmond area. Um, It's just, when you reference Halifax, parts of Halifax, there are no boroughs. It's the north end, the south end, or the west end. There isn't even an east end. So Richmond was in the northeast part of Halifax. And I'm just trying to restore the name to this community because of its historical significance. It was the community that was most impacted by the explosion, having somewhere in the vicinity of 1,800 people within this residence of this community die. So therefore, you know, it's important to me that uh, we restore the name Richmond. So I'm doing a bit of a history on Richmond to support that. And can we hope that that might be published as a book in years to come to stand on the shelf next to The Blind Mechanic? I am hopeful. Um, <laughs> one never knows. Um, but that is that is my hope. And even having that published, I mean, City Hall, it, things grind slowly, right? So uh, I have been working with City Hall to try to restore Richmond's name and its historical significance. But the wheels turn slow. Well, let's hope you have success both in getting the name restored and in publication in the not-too-distant future. Thank you. Now, we can hear that your father has walked beside you throughout your life, and it wasn't a surprise to me to find out that you have been a CNIB volunteer for many, many years. But Eric's legacy also lives on in your daughter, Andrea. Oh, yes, yes. My daughter, Andrea, studied, well, she has her master's in special education, uh, focusing on teaching visually uh, impaired children. So uh, she was so close to mom and dad and so involved with them that it just, I guess, rubbed off naturally. She was She's just a natural with any anyone who has any handicap. I shouldn't just focus on uh, the visual uh, impairment, but uh, she just has a natural ability. And um, I think that's because of her exposure, her being raised in a family where um, my parents were both... Well, my father was blind and my mother was um, severely visually impaired. And the CNIB played a great part in their lives, didn't it? Yes, uh, CNIB is more uh, for adults. They they don't really do a lot with, uh, you know, schooling children and so on. That was the Halifax School for the Blind for my parents. But and when they became adults and married and they wanted to buy their first home, uh, the CNIB actually gave them a loan because the banks wouldn't. Uh, so they gave them a, a, a small loan to help them uh, purchase their first home. And then uh, after that, mom and dad were, it was mostly social that they were involved with the CNIB. They did repay the loan of course, and uh, subsequently in time owned their own home. Um, So most of their involvement with the CNIB as adults after the initial uh, 
assistance purchasing the home. They didn't really need any assistance from the CNIB as others did. Uh, they were more volunteering, giving back to the CNIB. And um, a lot of uh, my, my parents over the years gave a fair amount uh, in funds, funding to the CNIB. And I know they were both huge fans of the CNIB library and they left an endowment after their deaths to the library for more books to be recorded in audio and made into Braille. And your mother particularly was a voracious reader, both of Braille and audio books, while she was knitting. Yes. <laughs> yeah, she was a multitasker. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, she she just loved uh, it brought the world to her, she said, uh, when she listened to the audiobooks, and she uh, listened to all genre. Uh, she didn't stick to fiction. She preferred nonfiction and uh, current affairs and so on. And Dad certainly enjoyed listening to the radio, uh, current affairs programs. But, yes, my mother was a voracious reader, but, you know, she she could read print with a magnifying glass, but she would never read print to us children because she read it haltingly and she wouldn't she said she never wanted us to pick up that habit of reading haltingly so uh yes she she never she would read braille to us she certainly was a, a great supporter of the CNIB library and she had a big collection of knitting patterns in braille I understand Yes, she did. And we passed those on. Uh, when when my mother passed, uh, she had requested that they be passed on to uh, someone she knew who was a, a knitter and who was uh, visually impaired. So they're somewhere out there still. Uh, but yes, it, it was remarkable, the knitting that, that uh, she did. And I still have a lot of it. Um, she knit Christmas stockings with... Uh, Santa Claus on them and uh, snowmen. And it, 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 her her knitting was um, well. She won she won prizes for it at the Toronto exhibition. Now I know that Eric did work for CNIB himself uh, before he became a mechanic, and that was as an employment advisor. And I was really struck by the limited selection of jobs that a blind person was deemed suitable to do in the 1920s and 30s. Could you detail some of those jobs? Well, yes, uh, certainly caning chairs was, was one of them, uh, and working at canteens. There were a lot of CNIB canteens in Halifax, at the hospitals and in some of the uh, uh, department stores and so on. And those seemed to be like two of the key jobs that they were recruiting people to do. And my father never wanted to be stuck in that that rut, I guess. Um, so he was determined that, you know, he wasn't going to be doing one of those jobs. Um, and even today, Red, there I hear people saying that, there's certain jobs that uh, I guess the public or I don't want to say the CNIB, um, but I know of different uh, visually impaired people who are struggling to get out of a rut of where they, uh, where society feels they should be working, uh, what they should be doing. Certainly technology has opened up a lot of new careers for people with visual impairments. But um, I, st I understand they're still struggling to break into some trades. I think the barriers are still there, which is why it is so important to have a record of how one man's quiet determination can confound the expectations and prejudices of a sighted world. But I know that you didn't feel that you could start writing The Blind Mechanic until after your father had passed in 2009. 
And there's a good reason for that, isn't there? Yes. And, you know, I would have so much loved to do it while he was living. But as we discussed earlier, my father was a humble, uh, private man. And if the book took off, there would be so much uh, more media attention on him. And I didn't I didn't want to do that to him. Uh, I knew he wouldn't uh, wouldn't appreciate it. So therefore, uh, I decided to wait until it was uh, a better time to write it. it. It seems cruel. It seems mean. But um, I, I didn't want to upset my father. And clearly it was very important for you that there should be an audiobook version alongside the print and Kindle versions, and that's where the Sealer Library was able to help. That's right, yes, I, uh, and that's me thinking of my mother and how she uh, enjoyed the audiobooks and Braille, and, uh, and I knew in my heart that my mother would want this book to be in that format, those formats. And they, as I understand, it's in a Braille format as well. Mm. So, uh, yes, uh, I'm most pleased that they took the project on, and it's just wonderful because I know a lot of clients here at the CNIB who have been able to uh, enjoy my book because of that. Was your dad much of a reader? Not really, no. He, he enjoyed the radio. <laughs> and mum would read to him, mm-hmm. or, or they would sit and read, uh, listen to the audiobook together. Uh, but sometimes mum would read Braille to him. Um, as we children came along and, and were able to read, of course, reading print fell to us. And me being the only girl, uh, I did most of it. <laughs> My brothers probably aren't happy to hear me say that, but it's the truth. Anyway, um, but no, he certainly had to read Braille when he was in school, and he knew how to read Braille, but uh, he didn't uh, use the CNIB library sources uh, for that purpose. His, his medium was the radio. Well, and I can't imagine that the library had a particularly wide selection of automotive manuals for him to read. Perhaps, no. perhaps it was the subject matter that put him off. Could be. Well... After the final break, um, I would like to explore some of the books that you've enjoyed reading in your life with the books of your life. Sounds good. This is My Life in Books on AMI-audio with Red Sail. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to My Life in Books. Now it's time to share the books of Marilyn Davidson Elliott's life. Marilyn, was there a book that you read as a youngster that made you fall in love with reading or want to become a writer? Well, I would have to say Pippi Longstocking, which is a series of books by Astrid Lindgren. And Pippi Longstocking was a precocious little girl with red hair and pigtails and freckles and I could relate to her because I had red hair and freckles. And um, Pippi was uh, precocious. Uh, she was generous and kind. Um, but she got into all sorts of little pickles. And uh, anyway, I just related to her. And, of course, it was a series of books, so I gobbled them up. But as a youngster, my mother encouraged reading and fortunately, in the little school that we attended, there was a library, a small library. And, I mean, I devoured books there. Uh, so, but Pippi, Pippi Longstocking sticks out in my, when I think back, you know, and I have to think of one book in particular, that particular series I thoroughly enjoyed. And is there a book that on a rainy day you'd like to curl up with and reread? Well, I must confess that that would be the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon. And uh, that's a series of books about a time-traveling nurse uh, who ends up going from 1946 to back in time to 
1745 Highlands of Scotland and the Jacobite Rising. And uh, it's pure fiction, historical fiction, but I, I just love it. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. And finally, is there a book you've read recently that you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, yeah, it's um, Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. And it's about a young girl who was abandoned as a child in uh, the swampland of North Carolina. And uh, she subsequently becomes a suspect as she gets older and in a man's murder. But it, it, it was just the, um, I guess, the story, the descriptive um, comparisons of animals and insect behavior to human behavior and the preservation of natural uh, spaces and marshlands that really struck, struck me and I really enjoyed it. It's a hugely evocative book, isn't it? It is. It is. Very popular. Well, Marilyn Davidson Elliott, thank you so much for sharing your love of books with the listeners and also for sharing the extraordinary story of your father, Eric Davidson, The Blind Mechanic. Thank you, Red. It was my pleasure. It's time to turn the page on this episode of My Life in Books. Thanks again to my guest, Marilyn Davidson Elliott, and to the show's producer, Sean Priest. He and I are already working on the next episode, so don't forget to tune in, same time, same place, to hear another top author talking books. Keep in touch with Red by emailing feedback at ami.ca or leave a voicemail on 844-971-1999 and share your favorite reads. And don't forget, you can listen again to this episode and every episode of this program by visiting ami.ca and searching for My Life in Books or find us in whatever podcast player or smart device you use. Catch you next time. Hello, I'm Sean Priest. Join me monthly for Sean of the Shed, where I introduce you to all the technology that can be so useful to us as blind or partially sighted people. Find Sean of the Shed wherever you find all your podcasts.